Welcome to the Chalkboard Interviews, where we interview teachers with integrity, dedicated professionals that infuse wisdom and common sense into their daily routine, promoting compassion and excellence into the greatest resource we have, our children. Thank you for joining the show and enjoy. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the EduBabble Emporium. My name is Tom O'Brien, and I will be your host today. And we are honored to have a retired educator. And uh, this guy is a longtime friend. His name is Denny Thompson. Denny, are you there? Are you there, Denny? I am here, Tom. Sweetness. Well, Denny, we're going to be asking you some questions today and kind of uh, even going all the way back to your childhood and kind of up to current times and get your input on a lot of different issues. So I hope you're ready for that. You ready for that, Denny? I'm ready. Let's let's do it. Sweet. So a couple things I, I want you to know uh, about Denny, and I'm just going to kind of do a little introduction here, so you just be patient with me now, Denny. Um, Denny is a guy that I've known for a long time, and it started about 31 years ago, and I was uh, student teaching at a school that Denny was at. And I happen to have been placed in a classroom of a 35-year teaching veteran. And she was a great lady, uh, pretty kind to most people. But she was a very strong believer in worksheets all day long. And she made it very clear to me that I was going to use each and every one of those worksheets that she had stacked in the corner, about neck high. And so there wasn't going to be a lot of creativity going on. Denny? Must have known something about this because um, he was a veteran. He came down to the classroom, popped his head in. He said, hey, my name's Denny. He said, I'm a fifth grade teacher right down the hallway. He says, if you'd like to come down here and I can show you some stuff and work with you after school. He said, I, I've got a lot of great ideas I'd love to share with you. And I went down there and that was the kind of, the, you know, it was the beginning of a, of a long-standing friendship. And uh, Denny, you realize how unusual that is for a for a seasoned teacher to pop his head into a classroom and and uh, kind of connect with a student teacher, that's unusual. What what caused you to do that? Do you remember that? Well, you know, I kind of sensed that what was going on, um, just what you just said, was not your best experience for you. And I think I kind of felt um, maybe a little responsibility. I, I Just to kind of get to know you a little bit, I thought, okay, that's, that's not good. <laughs> I decided I thought it's worth spending some extra time because – not really the best situation for you. Well, so I want to help. It was awesome because you gave me tons of great ideas. A lot of those ideas I used and I still use today. And a couple other things. Um, so Denny's wife, Sherry, kind of befriended Robin, who was also getting into teaching, and Sherry was a teacher. So that uh, kind of helped Robin to kind of get kind of inoculated into things she needed to know about education, and, and Sherry was kind of a mentor to her as well. And another thing that you guys were really instrumental in is you were out for a walk. If you you may not remember this, but you and Sherry were out for a walk. You had gotten home from the walk. You called us. We had happened to be looking for a home at the time, and we just couldn't find anything in our price range that was decent. And you called us on the phone, and you said, there is a house a few blocks away from us, and it's an awesome little house for sale by owner. And I think it's a great, you know, you said, I think this is a really good price. And we actually were over there in 15 minutes. We walked through it, talked to the owner, put 500 bucks down, and that was our first house. It was an awesome house. 
And so you guys actually found that house for us. You remember that? You know, I do, but we I probably got to give credit to Sherry on that one. She was the one that was really, really watching the homes. Okay. And she mentioned it to me, but it was her. She's the one that saw it, and, she was, and I thought, yeah, that's definitely a good idea. Let's do it. It was, it was an awesome house. And, and finally, where I teach right now, uh, another little story. I teach at the middle school, and that was a place I wanted to be for many years. And Denny called me on the way out of the personnel office. He submitted his retirement. He put a good word in for me. He called me on his way out of the office. He said, hey, I want to let you know I'm retired, and I just put in a really good word for you. And they interviewed me just about a week later. And now I've been in the classroom you used to teach, and I've been in that room for 14 years now. And uh, and your flags of the Eastern Hemisphere are still hanging in, in that classroom. They're still there. How about that? They're still you there. know, that this, this past 14 years, I feel like I'm still connected to that classroom because, uh, you know, we connect quite a bit, almost on a daily basis sometimes. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. And by the way, we're moving into a new building next year, and those flags are not able to go. Do you want those? Those would be kind of cool in that in that um, kind of that barn dominium you have out front. You know what? That sounds like a good idea. I might take those. Yeah, sweet. Oh, awesome. So bottom line, you and Sherry have been great friends to us, and you have been a mentor to me um, on a lot of different things, teaching, raising kids, navigating the complexities of public education. But, you know, your knowledge goes way beyond that of teaching, and we'll kind of get into that today, but... You have spent so much time studying scripture, biblical prophecy, world events. You've been to Israel many times. You've led tours on several occasions on your trips to Israel. You've written books and travel guides, and you continue to study all the different things that are going on in the world today. And so hopefully we're going to be able to dig into some of this stuff. So, Denny, it is an absolute pleasure to have you today, and I hope you're ready for some questions. You know what? I'm ready, Tom. Let's let's do this. Let's do it. So, hey, uh, first question. I'd like you to kind of, since you live in the beautiful north country of the lower peninsula of Michigan in Central Lake, can you give us a little brief history of the, the home that you're currently living in and the cool story behind that? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, I grew up in Bel Air. Uh, my family was from that town originally. Um, only at age five, we moved away when I was just five. Yeah, but my grandfather was a pastor in Bel Air, and he built a cottage on the Intermediate Lake. Um, it was he used it actually for the kind of a church gathering on a lot of Saturdays. They would come down here, and and he he built a, like a pavilion down by the lake, um, where you'd have pancake breakfasts. I remember when I was a little kid. I remember some of the big gatherings. So that's kind of what it was. My grandfather died in 1856. That this property went into my parents ownership Mm -hmm. my dad died in 77 and my mother had to sell it because um none of us had the money to buy it in 78 so it was out of the family and typically that's it on these lake properties when it leaves a family it's usually over um about three years ago i caught wind that the current owner was interested in selling so i approached him long story short as we bought it in about a year and a half maybe almost two years of remodeling um, we didn't enlarge the house. It's still a pretty small house, but it's super comfortable. Build a garage and some other things. Um, it's our home. It's where we live again. So it's kind of cool. We're the same neighbors from when I was a kid, believe it or not. That's so it's, it is really unusual in order to come up for a family to get back into a 
previously owned place because right. that rarely, rarely happens. So it's pretty neat. And it's a very unique property in that it has all kinds of lake frontage, great for your grandkids. And and uh, and you had your son-in-law who kind of participated in this whole process by doing a lot of the remodeling, right? He did. Yeah, I was his uh, little side helper there, just simply helper, but he he's super skilled. Yeah. He's a finished carpenter and he did all the work. So yeah, that was that was pretty neat. Initially, we weren't sure because it is small, um, but whether or not our kids would be totally on board with this. But that didn't take long. They're totally on board. They love the property. Grandkids, they just love it here. So it's you know we have had no regrets. We're happy where we're at, and it's just it just seems like it just was meant to be. Oh yeah, and it it is absolutely beautiful. It really is. So talking about your your grandfather and your dad. I know that your dad was a pretty amazing guy and just had an amazing influence on on your life. Can you get into that a little bit, uh, the impact that your father had on you? Sure. Yeah, he was, um, my dad was really kind of one of a kind. I, I guess I knew it as I was growing up, and especially as I got older, and especially later. But he died um, at exit age 62. I was a bit of a tag along. He was 37, I think, when I was born. So okay. I was, I think, 27 or 28. So I, I kind of lost him at a, or he died at an age where I wish, obviously, I could have had him longer. But he was, he was the kind of guy who was um, had an eighth grade formal education, but he was self-taught. He read Schaefer, C.S. Lewis, even guys like Henry David Thoreau, and um, just really educated himself in in a way that was pretty amazing. He was filled with wisdom, probably the wisest person that I've ever met in terms of true wisdom. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I think he influenced me obviously in so many ways, but one of them was I looked upon people with degrees or just having a degree as not necessarily any kind of a metric of wisdom whatsoever. Cause my dad had an eighth grade education and he was amazing. Uh, so it probably influenced me in that way. In other ways, too, he, my dad was always one that um, was looked at people who were kind of down and out, and he wanted to lend a helping hand. He did so many things, more than I even knew about in my lifetime. I learned some of them at his funeral. But he was just wired that way. And I think that kind of – I think I picked that up, too, because I was kind of the same way. I would make friends with kids in high school who didn't have other friends and I think in teaching, I was kind of wired for those kids that were, you know, not the normal popular kids, but right. kids struggling a little bit or maybe tough background. So I think all of that came from him. That's awesome. What did, what did you learn from him with regard to being uh, just a dad and even um, how he treated your mom? Did, did you learn a lot from him about that, too? Oh, for sure. Yeah, he was, um, you know, just complete respect for my mother. She was... I mean, the two of them had a great marriage. Um, yeah, he was he was just he was, he was a real calm guy. He never really, you know, he could always keep his cool, but he was very steady and he was very perceptive as to what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought maybe I was sliding something by him. I wasn't. Yep. <laughs> he knew. Yep. And he would approach it in a very gentle way, but he would definitely approach it in a way that, you know, I knew that whatever that was, maybe is something I shouldn't be doing. Right. And I felt guilty about it. So his his effectiveness was his, in his consistency. And I think that, too, I, I learned that's really where, you know, parenting and discipline, even as a teacher, comes not necessarily with how well you yell, but how consistent you are. Everything has to be totally consistent standards. Right. 
Yeah, and you know what's interesting because I know that you oftentimes talked about your dad and kind of the crisis I think we're dealing with in the public schools or in society in general is, you know, as a country, 40% of all children are born without a dad in the home. And when you get into the inner city, that number skyrockets. And like, for example, with the African-American populace, 75% of those kids are born without a father in the home. And um, I think you've always been cognizant of that, even when you were teaching. And did that influence how you kind of dealt with kids as far as trying to, for some of those kids trying to be that father figure? Yeah, it did. Um, my initial job, my first teaching job was in Indiana. I went to Taylor University for the college. Okay. Um, and it was in a town called Marion, Indiana. And it had a fairly large black population. I think probably 35, 38% of the school. Um, and so I initially, and it actually, I was teaching in a time period, 1973, okay. just post that 60s time period. And it was, a, that was a pretty wild time. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of racial issues. Marion, Indiana, believe it or not, actually had an active Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Um, and I witnessed, I actually did witness a lot of racism in the school, even occasionally among the teachers towards some of the black students, believe it or not. Wow. I was pretty stunned um, as to what I saw. So it really did influence me in terms of the students and um, the, the, the particularly the black students in the school. If I could just tell you one quick story. Sure. Um, my first day of teaching, we actually hadn't been given a class list ahead of time. And I, we were told I was a seventh grade geography teacher, social studies teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, when we were kind of prepped on the kids coming up in sixth grade, so forth, um, it was mentioned that there was this one student who was really just a holy terror. And hopefully you don't get this student. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all those deals. Oh, yeah. um, I'll just use her first name. Her first name is Stefan. It's a black student. And it was, she was described as being about as, uh, you know, wide as she is tall, just kind of real, you know, just a real stub or kind of a stout looking girl, mm -hmm. very strong um, and very, very strong personality. So anyway, long story short, as I'm driving into that junior high school on my very first day. And by the way, as I'm driving up into that, into the school and it just rained, there was mud puddles all over the place. Driving an old car with kind of a loose muffler. Yeah. Well, I hit a mud puddle. My muffler fell <laughs> and uh, the, the kids in the front yard, the, the guys that were there early, they're all just cheering. Hey man, you go dude. You know, I was this new teacher driving up. So anyway, that was my introduction going in the building. I, then I get in my classroom and I look at the class list and you can guess it. She was on my first hour list. Okay. And I thought, oh my goodness. So anyway, so the class comes in. And by the way, I was in a, what they call an open classroom that was popular back in those oh, days. Yeah. Yep. The school set up because schools, you know, schools are, they're very fat oriented. Oh yeah. Rather than actually studying things over and figure out what works and talk to teachers. You know, that's always been a problem issue for forever. But anyway, um, so I, you know, I get started and, and I recognized her right away when she sat down. Um, and I just started to introduce myself. Hello, I'm Mr. I got that much out. Yeah. She stood up and I won't, I can't repeat what she said. A lot of M efforts <laughs> okay. and, uh, somebody apparently bumped her and she was just like spinning. She was just rotating. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually had to call the Dean because she was completely out of control. I never, you know, that was my introduction. So I got going again and she was back the next day and over a period of time, um, really over time, I developed a relationship with her. I let her know that I'm the teacher. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're the student. You've got, you know, it's got to be different. It didn't happen overnight. You know, I'm not going to pretend like this is, was instantly better. But over time, it was a lot better. And we actually, I think she grew to respect me. And it was pretty cool because I had high expectations of her. Yeah. And she did really well. Um, and I had some other um, black students in that school that were, was interesting. One in particular, a guy named, a little boy named Freddie, who was really cool, tough, tough life, home life. And he had gotten sick for a while. So um, he was out of school for maybe two and a half weeks and he was getting way behind his work. So I took his work to his house and, uh, and tried to help him out, tutor him. I thought well, that's the thing to do. Some other teachers in the school, which was kind of reflecting some of that racism, which was stunning to me, said, what were you doing? I said, what do you mean what was I doing? I was just helping Freddie out. And they were thinking that was, you know, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. Um, anyway, so, so I got into that in, um, in terms of working with black students throughout that year. I worked the, the whole year with many of them. And, but I never lowered my expectations mm-hmm. for any of them because to me, that's obviously the wrong thing to do. I'm telling them they're not capable. They needed, a lot of them needed extra help because of home life or whatever. And I'm not just, just signaling out black students overall. I am in this conversation, but obviously this applies to any student with a tough background, but they need, they needed the extra help, but their standards cannot be lowered. You can't say because of this or that you are not capable. And by the way, if I could just interject this, your interview with Mike Lapchek, which goes along this line right here, his own background was amazing. Hmm. I respect him so much. He's such a neat guy, yeah, great teacher, you know, kids, he, he loved kids, but he kept the high standards. And, and that's what I found, um, you know, during that time period, I just kind of kept it going later in the year. This is something I, I'll never forget. One of the black students come up to me because you got to remember this, as I mentioned, that there was some racism in the school. It wasn't sure. like blatant, but it was there. One of the black students come up to me and sit later in the school and said, you know, Mr. Thompson, um, I said, what? Uh, as a girl, she come up and said, you know, the black students consider Mr. Thompson to be the friend of the black students. And I thought, that's cool. hmm, that's a badge of honor. I don't I don't say that to brag, but I you know, to me, that was a big deal because I thought, you know, that's awesome because mm-hmm. I thought the world of, of all those students. And I but you but I believed in higher stance, keep their standards up. And I they respected that, which I thought was great. Well. Yeah, if I could just kind of chime in on that, because I, I feel the same way. I feel like um, there are trends right now, it seems, in education where um, regarding socioeconomic status or even, you know, different minority uh, populations where they're calling on education or educators to um, kind of, oh, what are they called? You know, a more culturally cognizant or culturally aware when it, with regard to um, standards and behavioral expectations. But I appreciate what you just said about, you know what? No, these kids are every bit as capable of any other uh, child. And we need to hold them to the same expectations because they are 100% capable. And I appreciate that. And I'm glad you said that. I mean, it's been called the bigotry of low expectations or whatever you want to call it, but they're as capable, you know, they need to achieve their dreams and their full potential just as much as anyone. So, I mean, that to me, anything less than that is an insult to them. It's not going to help them. It's going to hurt them. 100%. Hey, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here because I remember a story you told me about when you were eight years old and you and a buddy were out in the woods kind of hanging out 
and uh, something happened to you that was kind of a life-altering experience. And I'd like you to kind of not only tell me what that experience was, how that impacted you, and did you use that uh, as a crutch, or did you use that to kind of uh, build resilience in your life? So if you can kind of give us some details on that story. Yeah, I was uh, eight years old. And I was with a friend of mine. We were I was um, putting sticks together to make a like a teepee fire, Indian teepee fire. Mm-hmm. And he was throwing the sticks to me, and I was setting them up. And I just looked up at the wrong time, and one of the sticks hit me in the left eye. Um, and it totally went through the eye, so it just completely destroyed it. Um, so that you know that obviously went into. I was eventually into surgery on that because that was a serious incident in terms of the eye. I remember waking up from the surgery after it was over. Um, I probably slept about two days. I woke up during the middle of the night and, um, and, th- and there was nobody there cause it was the middle of the night, but I, I kind of had a sense I was in the hospital because I'd been in one before I could hear the sounds. Mm-hmm. So I knew there was a button back there somewhere I could press. So I did. And a nurse come in and I asked her something. I couldn't see out of either eye at that time. I'd lost one eye completely, but my good eye, was completely swollen shut from the extensive surgery they had to do. So I thought I was blind. Yeah. I thought I was completely blind and I was really scared. And I just asked the nurse, am I blind? And, uh, the, she put her hand on my head and I'll never forget it. She, it's almost put her cheek to my cheek. I think, I, I think she was like, just, you know, just trying to very console me and say, no, Denny, you have lost an eye, but you're going to be able to see a one eye and your life is going to be just fine. Um, so, you know, that, that's where it started. I, you know, I lost sight in that eye. So, you know, in terms of my parents, they were obviously, you know, shaken up by that. But when I, I liked all sports, they wanted me to stay away from contact sports because of the one eye situation. They kind of directed me towards golf, um, thinking that'd be, you know, better. So, so anyway, I went, I went that way. And, um, you know, I, my dad played golf, so I had some advantage there and he helped me along and, and, you know, over time, I was able to get fairly good at golf. Um, and we didn't, there were not a lot of guys playing golf back in those days. But so anyway, in high, in high school, I become the number one golfer. Um, and I think I set the, a record that still stands. It, at, yeah, if uh, I can interject there, I, um, we were at conferences a couple of years ago in the, in the gymnasium over at uh, Hudsonville High School. And Denny Thompson's name was up there. And I don't know, it was either a 32 or a 33, which was the nine-hole record, standing record. And what year would that have been? 66. 66. And so that thing was, that's we're talking just, you know, maybe this was two, three, four years ago. And so yeah. that, that's quite, that's an amazing record. Yeah, for 66, that one's burned in history way back in time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, but we... Uh, our high school team was fairly good. I, we went on in, in a class, and I don't say this, I'm not going to say this in any way, shape, or form to brag, but I just, I just want to mention mm-hmm. something here. When, when I played golf with one eye, um, I just had the one eye. There there are some restrictions in terms of, um, you know, what, what that means. Usually it means the bigger issue is depth perception. Right. So back in the days before we had, you know, good markings on shots, how many yards to the hole. You had to do some guessing, especially holes with valleys between you and the green. I would sometimes misjudge distances. Right. Um, so that was, you know, a bit of an issue. And then because my left eye was gone, um, when I lined up to the ball, if I 
rotated my head too much, I literally would lose sight of the ball completely. Wow. So it made me keep my head down. So there was a few things like that. Uh, but you know what? I never, ever thought about it. And people didn't talk about that stuff back then. You just deal with whatever. You know, it's like it wasn't really that big a deal. People have much bigger things than that. I'm not saying that whatsoever. So I never thought about it. I thought, okay, I just I was fairly competitive. I think I had that in me that I wanted to, you know, beat the other guy. Um, maybe kind of a quiet competitor. I wasn't like verbally, but right. you know, in my mind, I'm going to get this guy. So I did go on. I won the class Michigan um, class B West Michigan championship of about 350 golfers. I think there were wow. the score I shot wouldn't have normally won. I shot a 76 on a tough Lake Michigan course. It was a condition. It was like 46 degrees, wind, rain, sleet. Um, so that was my reason that won that day. And then I got to play at Taylor University. Um, you know, we had a we had a pretty good team. So we got a lot of it was fun. We I roomed with the golf guys from the golf team for years and uh or actually three years. And so we had a good time. You know, we got a chance to do some traveling and we won the NAIA um championship of Indiana. There are thirty two NAIA schools, three of the four years I was there. Wow. And uh and I stayed usually in the fourth lowest up the fifth or sixth man on the team until my senior year and then i that's when i met my future wife sherry and my golf game went down <laughs> and uh boy did i get razzed on that one i, I didn't bet. even make the cut on the spring break tour okay. so it was they i never heard the end of that one so yeah, anyway you were in love yeah i'm afraid that's what happened and that's what they reminded me of yeah. but but it was you know it was a big part of my life and um and the one i think it just I didn't even think about it. It's just like, okay, this, you know, because really to me, I didn't literally think about it. Occasionally other people talk about it, but it's like, no, nah, it's not a big deal because it really is. None of those things are. Well, have you, have you ever heard of any other golfers that have been competitive? Maybe, I don't know, college or pro ranks with one eye. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone. Um, because I don't think I have either. Actually, I'm not sure. One, I, can't I think that, that I don't know if people recognize, you know, I'm, I'm a golfer too. And having one eye really, um, hinders your ability with, uh, depth perception and yardage and, and just kind of being able to, um, I don't know, just zero in on the ball when you're even hitting it. So it's, it's pretty amazing uh, how well you were able to do, but I think it's really cool that you didn't use that as a, a crutch or uh, an excuse of not to do your best and, try hard maybe yeah. motiv motivated even more who knows it probably did and and be honest with you i just didn't think about it right. i just i literally did not think about it i just kind of you know moved on and that was that so you taught in the district that i work in and you worked there for many years and over the years um what were some of the highlights do you have any that you can reflect back on that that uh, were things that you just say this was a really cool event or thing that I was involved in that kind of you felt made a difference in the lives of kids that that you did yeah when I started out um I hired in Granville I had taught middle school or junior high down in Indiana as I mentioned five years down there and then when I hired in Granville I had um I, I was looking north and I I couldn't get a job in secondary social so I went got I went back and got another master's in elementary so I taught in elementary school at the beginning mm -hmm. Um, and I worked for a guy early on um, named Bob Bradford, 
Yep. And um, and the the schools back in those days was in the that was the what later seventies to really early eighties, um, you know, Granville schools were really rated high. They're um, you know just excellent in education. And Bob Bradford was the epitome of a, a great administrator. Um, he Mike reminds me of Bob Bradford, Mike Lapchuk, mm-hmm. um, because he was Bob Bradford was the kind of guy who just you know, it was no nonsense. He believed in high standards. Um, he loved kids. Yep. He, if, if you had an issue with a kid and you referred him, you want to see Mr. Bradford? Oh, no, Mr. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> because he would definitely um, call him out and they, he would discipline him and they knew it. But what was interesting about him, um, it was he would be right back soon after that, maybe the next day, call the kid out, put his arm around his shoulder and say, how's it going? Did you learn anything? And he cared about those kids. And, right. you know, I, I, that was a highlight, just seeing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wound up in, let's see, and I was laid off in 82 because of all, there was a huge amount of layoffs back then. Brian Callahan called me after two years and said, hey, Denny, I can get you back in Granville. He's a I superintendent said, at the time. He was a superintendent. And he said, well, we got to um, you don't have, there's no positions open because there was huge layoffs back in, I think like 32 elementary alone, mm-hmm. you know, and those positions had not all come back at all. Um, but he told me he can get me back. He said, we have money to start a hands-on science program. I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a science teacher. He said, yeah, I know. I've looked at your resume. He said, if you take this class, this class, he says, it'll work. So anyway, I did that. And then I started a hands-on science program for the upper elementary yeah. in Granville. And it was a tremendous amount of work, but it was, you know, I think it was worthwhile. They kept the program, I think, all up till recently. Yeah. Um, and that was a one-of-a-kind program. I, I, I think that many other districts kind of modeled their science program after that. Yeah, and they, you know, initially it was it was crude. We didn't have any science rooms. I had a big blue van. I carried everything in the back of the van and wow. went around different schools. So it was pretty tough. But but anyway, so that was that was during that time period. Then I went back to elementary. My my position opened up again. Taught that, and then in '92 uh, I went back up to the middle school. That's kind of where I was thinking long term. I want to go back teach social studies history again, yep. and so I was able to do that um, from '92 until I retired in 2009, all the way. So that was kind of an overview of my teaching career in Granville. Over that over that course of time, um, did you notice? I mean, there's always new fads coming down the pike, but were there any like um, ideologies that were coming down that you noticed that uh, that you either thought were really great or maybe that you were very skeptical of and maybe saw possible long term negative impacts? Were there any changes during your tenure? Well, I mean, the standards kept dropping Um, in some of it was subtle, but they just kept dropping in terms of retention you know we did retain kids at one point and that become much more difficult over time some kids needed to be retained because they hadn't done the, you know had done the work right. um so all of that become more difficult i did notice you know there was more and more kids taking different kinds of drugs ritalin or whatever um that was a definite trend hmm. um we had more and more kids classified in every kind of way you can imagine i remember um i was most of the years i was a team teacher leader in the, at the middle school of my particular group there. And we would be given a, a list of all the kids who had um, either on medication or had special needs. And that list kept growing and growing and growing. 
hmm. all the time. Now, you know, some of that was, you know, more breakdown of society, and some of it was was not that. It was just kids being placed or being dis- being defined in certain areas that really weren't. I don't think true. Okay. I just think we have gone a direction. We went at that schools went a direction where we just lowered the standards, and if kids weren't meeting the standards, they'd come up with excuses or they'd come up with classifications okay. to um, basically justify it, to be honest with you. There is no question I saw this throughout my career. It was stunning. I mean, I just simply couldn't believe it. In fact, it, it got so frustrating over time. And I have seen, you know, I retired in 09. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know things have changed dramatically since I left. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got so, you know, it was getting frustrating. I remember starting a... Um, I think we called it you can do it a thematic day where we would have kids overcoming obstacles or learning about his great people from history in the United States that overcome incredible obstacles, um, bringing in special speakers that were had, had the same that uh, were just, you know, had made something of their life overcoming dramatic obstacles because the kids needed to learn that life is difficult and everyone has an obstacle of some type need overcome it so i actually not that it was gonna solve any big problems but just to solve some of my frustration we we started that we did a like a thematic day Mm -hmm. the whole day the whole day was based on the idea that i you can do it you know rather than you can't do it because of this this and that i remember (laughs) i remember you telling me about that and that that kind of manifested itself because of your own frustrations you kind of were were feeling that um, there was this mindset that was kind of um, descending upon public education where it's almost like we were giving uh, the kids a, a ticket to not be successful. You know what I'm saying? And I- uh, totally. You know, I'm just, as you're speaking, I'm thinking back to sitting in a meeting with a 5 olds no, I remember the terminology, 50C3. Oh, 504 plan? Yeah, 504 plan. Mm-hmm. And this particular student, um, the parent, you know, this is a student who wasn't doing this work and was capable, and, and the parent didn't want to hold them accountable, so they were, no, not a 504 plan, where they could qualify them for special ed for miscellaneous oh, reasons. Oh, an IEP? Yeah, an IEP, and there was a terminology for it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But anyway, so anyway, that um, I remember in that meeting, and this, this particular person actually had legal representation because um, they wanted to, the parent didn't really want to hold their own student accountable. Mm. And, and they're going to win because they can they can push them through. And I just mentioned to the, the parent, I said, you, you know, you are going to win this if you choose, but it's not going to be for the benefit of your son hmm. um, because we're teaching a lesson that's not going to work. It's simply, I'll guarantee you one day that you'll regret doing this. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that happened. We come up with multiple excuses for kids not doing the work. And obviously kids, certain kids need a lot of help. I've already talked about that. Right. Um, and you know, good teachers are totally attuned to that. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, there's so many good teachers in Granville I worked with and Still that's not is. what it is. It, right. It's this other, it's this other area of like, you know, we're just gonna, we're going to make all these excuses. And it's, it's part of that. I mean, there's been a massive trend in society this way and it's a bigger theme and there's a lot more going on than just that. I realize, especially since I've retired mm-hmm. and studying it, but it's, those are really toxic ideologies they really are and i think schools i think you'd agree that schools are kind of a microcosm of society because what you what you see in happening in the schools where 
you know, in some regard, we're lowering behavioral expectations and and academic expectations because of this classification or you're a member of this certain group or whatever. Now in society, we're seeing, I mean, if you look at the statistics lately over the last two or three years, it's astronomical, the violent crime and the murder rates and the suicide rates and the overdose rate are just off the charts. But I think the thing that's even more difficult to digest about all that is that a lot of these people who are convicted of these various crimes are let off right away by various district attorneys for, you know, um, what they call restorative justice principles, where in other words, you know, we just need to give this person another chance. And oftentimes these are like violent, violent criminals. And uh, it's a little more extreme to talk about it in that sense, but you're seeing a microcosm of that same type of, of uh, enabling going on in the schools. Oh, for sure. And I, th- there's examples of that all the time without going into all that now. I don't have time for it, but all you got to do is just pay attention to current events. And this is happening all the time. You know, there's people that are, um, for all kinds of reasons, they're, they're not being held to account. And yeah. uh, that's, that's destructive to society. It's obviously destroying the schools. It's going to weaken the schools until we decide, the leadership decides enough is enough. We're going to restore the standards. This is ridiculous. We have got to bring this back. The same is true in society. As as criminal elements grow, and they are growing, and they will continue to grow until we finally catch up with reality here and some common sense. And at that point, and people say, enough, enough. We're going to go back, and we're going to reestablish this, and we're going to go back to where we were, a country of laws based on Judeo-Christian principles, which we've gotten so far away from. Right. Now, when you say Judeo-Christian principles, you know, can you explain, I know what you mean, but can you explain to people that may be listening, what do you mean by that, Judeo-Christian principles? Well, of course, our history um, is based on our, our forefathers when they set this government up, they, they really based a ton about literally from the Bible, like 30 some percent declaration of independence constitution, a big percent either term, either literally from the Bible or principles from the Bible. Um, and of course the Bible going way back to the 10 commandments, the Hebraic Jewish origins. So Judeo Hebrews become known as Jews, Judeo Christian, where that all came from become the basis of all of our Western law. Hmm. And um, and it's all based on personal responsibility, individual responsibility, not collective, but individual. Um, and that's another massive change that's destroying the country. And, and so what's happened is um, there's been an assault on our country, and this manifests itself in so many ways. Um, let me just give you one, the teaching of history. I started seeing some changes way back, really a long, long time ago, almost like in the 90s. And especially after 2000, um, where history started to change, where some of the, um, as you know, in education, the the, the K-12 looks up or is, I should say, is um, often run by in terms of seminars and textbooks written by the by the universities. Mm-hmm. And so our seminars were, were based on usually university professors. And over time, it seemed like, you know, even in terms of what they were saying was, okay, I don't even recognize that as history. Hmm. And I, I would confront them sometimes and say, what, what are you talking about here? What is this, what you just said about Columbus? That's not even true. Look at his primary documents. Look at his diary. 
Um, so there was no lot of salt on this history, and it's obviously continued with, in all kinds of ways. Now, obviously, we have a nation of people who are flawed, mm-hmm. like every person's ever walked the earth. So we have flaws. But what's happened is kids are suddenly being taught this is an evil country. Mm-hmm. Origins are awful. They're totally based on slavery, uh, self-centeredness, you name it. And so there you have this generation of kids that is it's changing from what the groups I taught who did like love the country and said the said the, um, you know, the, the, had flags in a room and mm-hmm. pledge of allegiance and all that kind of thing to kids who are kind of mimicking what they're hearing that this country is a racist origins is no good. And, you know, socialism is good. They have no idea what socialism is. None. Right. Right. Um, none zero. They don't have any idea. I'd like to have five minutes with some of those kids to explain what socialism really is. Well, but they don't just, know. because not just they've been kids. Taught, <laughs> they've been taught. And I'm, I've been on a little bit of a tangent here. I've talked a little bit too long in this. But no, I, hear you. I feel pretty. I feel very passionate about this because our country is being assaulted in many ways. In, in this whole idea of trying to demean this country, rather than teaching warts and all, you teach us warts. The mm-hmm. word of this evil country that is absolutely horrific mm-hmm. and it's got to stop you know there are just lies everywhere you have 1619 project is ridiculous that mm-hmm. she's not a historian Nicole hannah jones she would admit that and yet you have that being taught in like thousands of schools being endorsed by the president it's like what's that about i mean um and a lot of what this is too is the book written in the early 80s, um, Howard Zinn, mm. a Marxist, uh, really a full-fledged communist, who wrote the book People's History. Yep. Usually whenever you see that word peoples, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a lot of the communists use that terminology, which absolutely demeans the United States. And I think is in retrospect, I learned that's where a lot of these professors were getting this revised history from, Howard Zinn, right. that book. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the same. I think she's picking him up. And and using him to demean the country. So anyone listening to this broadcast, if, uh, you know, any principal or, or um, school board member, whatever, be aware that this stuff, you know, that you are not letting this get into Granville public schools. Mm-hmm. Some of these lies because they are lies. Um, that's just toxic poison to the kids. It cannot happen. It's got if it is happening, it's got to stop. It's just absolutely not going to work. I agree. And, and, you know, that 1619 project. That's been totally dressed down by even people on the left. Historians on the left have have even said this this is not based on fact. This is this is essentially uh, a political ideology dressed up in kind of a pretend history, and it's uh, it's it's like you said, it's toxic. It's really toxic. Well, I think she's a, she's admitted that before, and yet and yet it's still endorsed. Right. It's like. I'm like, what is going on? Wake up, folks. You know, how could you possibly, the, the kids are the most treasured possessions. Why do you want to poison their minds? It's like, stop it. This has got to stop. You know, so in leadership, they, they've got to pay attention here. No, you know, no. and teachers that are trying to cry fall, they need to listen to what's going on because, you know, it has to stop. Right. And one of the things that I try to tell people is that, you know, all of this stuff, um, from an aesthetic standpoint, from the names of these different programs, like equity, for example, sounds great. You know, it really does. And anti-racism sounds wonderful. But when you dig below the surface and you just spend some time, 
researching. Um, it really is shocking what these words and these concepts really mean. And I think we need to implore people to not be lazy, to get off their duff and do some research and find out for themselves what this stuff really is all about, because it's not what they think it is. You know? Well, I would even argue that, you know, the term anti-racism, and that's a new one since, you know, I've been out of school, but I've been following mm-hmm. and others um, are not only wrong or deceptive they're literally the opposite literally the opposite of what they're saying right they literally are racism when when you are judging people on the color of the skin not the content of the characters that's all married to you yeah i know when you are not doing that that's racism yeah you know i mean my goodness you know the, the whole principle in the bible man that man looks you know on the outward appearance god looks at the heart right you know it's it i mean my goodness all we got to do is look at it and say does this make sense yeah. or somehow are we being deceived into picking up a program that literally can literally mean the opposite of what they say it means right nope amen to that so hey we're gonna that's a that's a heavy heavy topic talking about education and how things have changed let's kind of Let's talk a little bit about uh, what you've done since you've retired, because I know you've done some amazing traveling and have had a lot of great experiences with Sherry. And um, so could you tell me a little bit about and tell us a little bit about some of the places you've been able to travel to? And maybe if you can, maybe highlight a couple experiences that uh, were really uh, had a real impact on your life. Yeah, we've, we've been fortunate in that regard. Um, some of the the more highlight trips here would be China. That was a great trip. Um, met so many interesting people. That was the first year Xi Jinping was in office. Okay. Um, I probably wouldn't be able to go there today for some obvious reasons. Yeah. But back, this was in 2000, I'm thinking 14, if I remember right. Vietnam, that was a great trip. The, the Asian people I love. They're just awesome people. Yeah. It's obviously the leadership that's corrupt. Right. Um, just last year we went to Ecuador. That was fun. Galapagos, um, down into the Amazon rainforest and out to Galapagos, um, South Africa, several years ago, we were there for a couple months on a, um, we worked on an orphanage, um, uh, of obviously black South African children that about half of them had AIDS. Um, and it was fascinating. That was just incredibly interesting. Um, I, I met, you know, one of the things I learned there, since we've kind of centered a little bit on race in this discussion, maybe I'll pull this in because, you know, I spent time in South Africa. Mm-hmm. We spent time there. Um, but one of the things I learned there is, well, number one, our, of course, our media is just about done. I mean, they, they just don't report things. We have a lot of stories we don't hear or they're distorted or whatever. They have like a little cone of acceptance. Mm-hmm. If it fits in that cone, you'll hear about the story. Otherwise, they'll trim off the parts they don't want you hear about or you won't hear about it at all but we don't hear the truth about south africa for example and what i learned is um can i pause you for a sec yes would you say that if people follow kind of the mainstream news outlets and even now nowadays even oftentimes uh like a fox news is starting to jump on the bandwagon with that that almost you know people think they're becoming more informed by watching these programs but it's almost like it's the opposite they're learning information that's either not even close to being true or they're learning information that is so watered down that there's not even any authenticity to it whatsoever. 
Yeah, I'd put it in that latter category. Uh, I think the news has just really lost it. And uh, yeah, it's 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 destructive. I'm not going to use any of the common phrases we hear, but it's really it's destructive because it's kind of like, you know, like the forefathers taught, it's important for us to be an informed population. And we have the means to do it, but they don't have the they don't want to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, back to South Africa. Um, what I learned is we had several helpers at the orphanage. Um that lived in townships, nearby townships. And I think maybe some of your listeners here probably know what townships were. They're very poor places, just little tin shacks where people live. And, uh, and I got to know some of them. I drove them home and it was pretty fascinating going into those areas. Really interesting. Just talking to those people, but there's this general belief that the ANC African national Congress and the black South Africans are one unit, mm. you know, in other words, they're all the same. Well, that couldn't, that is so not true. So can I interject for just, is now the ANC is, is the party that Nelson Mandela was associated with. Is that correct? It is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Communist. Uh, you know, they had KGB influences big time. No question about it. I mean, that's not conspiracy. It just look it up unless it's been, um, you know, axed by Google because their search engines are obviously what they are. Right. But it's definitely, um, yeah, it did. So anyway, these, these, these other black South Africans, which they're really just neat people. I, I love them. I love going to their churches. The churches are like, somehow they can all sing. I don't understand how that works. They're all great singers. Mm-hmm. They, they dance when they go up and they, and they give their money and they're offering play them. Cool. I just learned a lot, but they're, the leadership is not with them. In fact, a lot of them are being persecuted or even tortured by the leadership. Wow. So this whole concept that, you know, if you're a black and South African, you're all the same is, is ridiculous. It's not true. Um, so, I mean, that, that kind of thing is just simply not true. So they, um, they're pushing, the government's pushing conformity uh, absolutely. with yeah. their opinion, the, the opinion you can have as a citizen. Yeah. And uh, you're not allowed to think differently. Is that what you're Not trying to say? Not at all. And, and there's a breakdown today. Um, we, we wanted to go back really bad. A lot of friends there, but we can't anymore. It's too dangerous. Um, you know, it goes with the group. Okay. It, it's really out of control right now. Um, the government is utterly corrupt. The, the people we knew have pretty much left. That orphanage I just mentioned has closed. Wow. It's too dangerous. Oh, man. Um, there's a reverse racism going on. It's been going on for a while. It started even when we were there at 11. It was happening, but it's been going on. So, yeah, it's... It's sad. It's a beautiful country, absolutely stunningly beautiful, and I love the people. But it's sad to see what's happened to it because it's, you know, th- that's there's your example of these extreme racist models they're trying to get into school. If you want to carry them to their full import, hmm. there you go. That's what you got. You got South Africa. You don't wind up with this equal opportunity model at all. Hmm. You wind up with these friends that I made that I don't get to see anymore because I can't even go back to the country because it's so unsafe. You wind up with a country like that where they've lost, you know, they don't have opportunities anymore and they, they're fearing for their lives. So it's sad. And it I ask a, can I ask a question? Cause I've heard a lot in South Africa, a lot about the government cracking down on a lot of the, the landowners that have held land for sometimes a hundred years or more. A lot of these white Dutch farmers down there, and I've heard that that's quite a dangerous uh, place to be. And if you're a white farmer, um, there's a lot of death involved in that profession today. Can you explain that a little bit? Oh, there's no question that's going on. The, the, already back in 11, when we were there, there was a couple from, they were um, Dutch, um, Afrikaners. 
and they had they call them farms or like kind of like more like ranches mm -hmm. and they were leaving they were they were getting out because it was already getting dangerous back then and oh yeah there's been tortures there's been you name it and and that does not benefit at all those other black south africans that i just mentioned in fact the area we were in was in what they call the high veld above pretoria mm -hmm. and they were just bringing in um more and more of the big game animals they had them all there except for lions and elephants and they brought them in because they're creating all these little safari um like little resorts you know where people could come and stay and yep. see the big animals yep. i'll tell you what, that was creating all kinds of jobs for um the, the africans that live there good jobs well because of all of what i just said those jobs are all being lost and all that effort to try to develop the high veld and and develop safaris behind kruger on uh, these other areas they're they're just literally destroying their economy and destroying the work the opportunities of those people which is really sad why are they doing that why are they destroying these opportunities you know it's 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 almost like why is the united states why are we doing some things we're doing it i it's really hard to understand it's mm -hmm. just this power grab um this whole idea that they're gonna somehow you know they have this they're they're like the elites and they know better than anybody else okay type thing i mean that's the story of history that story of history is a, a lot of elites now i'm not denouncing all elites but if you want to go back through history and some of the most devastating parts of history it's the intellectual and wealthy elites that are running the show and they say we know better it's kind of like the you know orwell's animal farm where the animals are all equal mm -hmm. and they're having a great time to get rid of the farmer who represented the soviet union or actually the czar and we're going to be all equal and then pigs step up and say oh, we're the smartest so we'll take it over so um we're all equal but some of us are more equal <laughs> we're okay. the smart guys so that's what's happened in south africa that's what's happened in, in history, to be honest with you, because these people think they know better and, and they're going to control. And that's we have we see this most definitely going on today. Um, so the regular person's voice is not going to be heard anymore because the elites know better. And see, that flies in the face of what I was telling you about what I learned as a, as a child watching my dad. And um, literally, it's it just the very opposite of wisdom. It really is. You're, you're not paying attention um so it's and that's what ha that's what's happening and that's what's happening in south africa and i and i think i can kind of say that uh in the world of academia you know there's it used to be you know with a classical liberalism you know debate and uh opening the forum to all different opinions and thoughts used to be i mean that's what that's what academia was all about that's how you learned you know through open debate and challenging ideas and different things like that but now it's almost like there's a singular viewpoint and it comes from this like you said this centralized governing body and the elites in academia and in government and the department of education and they they release this information and everyone is supposed to fall in line and and accept it and if you if you think differently or you you oppose their opinions they try to silence you or they try to treat you like almost like there's something wrong with you or you're racist or you're sexist or homophobic or whatever. We see it in everything. I mean, literally, I mean, you can name the topic and it's, it's so destructive because we no longer care about the truth. We don't want to know all sides. Um, when I taught when it come to a, 
election time, I would have my students, or actually our whole team, we'd create a political party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I did this to try to develop this whole point you're just talking about home as to how our country is set up. And our party, our so pretend party would uh, develop its own party platform and they would learn the difficulties of how to compromise, you know, bad ideas around. They had a, like a convention and elected delegates and That's cool. that kind of thing. But when it comes time to, um, you know, that kind of, that whole idea of, of sharing ideas and trying to come up to a consensus is how this country was built and it's being ripped away. You know, and our forefathers warned heavily against this ever happening. Washington, all these guys did. I mean, so many quotes. Mm-hmm. And it's happening in front of us where really it's not going to be a um, decision of all the best minds and, and people have an input. No, if you have a differing input, you're called a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is so beyond, that is so insane. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Where people are labeled for all kinds of different um because their viewpoint doesn't align with the elites, they're shut up. That's obviously the First Amendment being trashed in many cases. Yep. This is devastating stuff for this country. Yep. This, is, this is like a five-alarm fire. We better wake up because we cannot keep going on this road. Yeah, I agree. Hey, let's talk about, um, let's talk about Israel, um, a place near and dear to your heart. And I know you've told me many times that you could totally see yourself living there. Um, can you explain what, where does this passion for Israel and for having gone there so many times and written books about it and led tours there, why why is this such an important uh, place for you? You know, I started, um, I've always been wired um, kind of like I wonder what it was like back in time type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, as a kid even, I wonder what it was like back in the Indian days. I wish I could be back then, you know, kind of, what you know. In my mind, I was always thinking that way. So I did that in teaching too a lot. We'd go back in time, do plays. What was it like back in Confucius Day? You have to, you have to role play it. So anyway, we I, still do a lot of those plays in class, by the way, that you wrote. So. You still yeah. cool. That's awesome. Um, but you know, in, in terms, of, I was, I really got thinking. I don't really know, even though I was raised in the church and I knew a fair amount about the Bible. I thought I really don't know the world of the Bible that well. So I started really getting into it in 1997. Um, there was something that kind of triggered the interest. I don't have time to go into that here, but um, but it did. And I and I got interested in it, studying the background of the Bible. And as I got into it, actually part of what it did too is I part of it, our education system, our education system is kind of built on kind of a Greek worldview, Western worldview, which is what our country is. It's not bad, it's just our history. We were the Greek model, the Romans copied it, and then of course Europeans are primarily European. So we have this viewpoint of history kind of through that that mindset that mindset is very different than the hebraic mindset the hebrew mindset of the old testament what do i mean by that obviously that's the topic let me just give you a couple quick examples um the greek model views as beauty and intelligence and that kind of thing money as being you know the elite as, as being great the hebraic mindset is very different it views developing your individual God-given talents, even manual labor, no matter what it was, as being true wisdom. Hmm. Example, let's say somebody was a potter and they made pottery and they knew how to spin this wheel and they could, they could do this. If the greatest rabbi walked into a session where a potter was working on a, a jar, you, the 
the potter would never be expected to stand up in honor of the rabbi. The rabbi would watch the potter because he was watching somebody with God-given talents use their skills Mm -hmm. to honor God. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for work and worship is abad, and it's the same word. So in other words, if if you follow that through, the whole concept is how we are created is how what God wants to develop us as not, you know, not what somebody else says we have to do, but how are we created? How are we wired? That's, that's honoring God. Anyway, that whole mindset becomes just fascinating to me. And I started learning that the Bible becomes like a big picture book. It, it begins, the Hebrew is actually a picture language initially. And it appealed to me from the, the babbling <laughs> And that's where, um, you know, this whole, I think, if you, you probably have to give me credit for this term, edubabble. Edubabble is a term that I got from Denny Thompson probably 20 to 25 years ago when you would talk about all of these different acronyms and different words and kind of almost like meaning, meaningless phrases and sound bites that we would hear about in these staff meetings and in services. So, yes, that, that did come from you. It would give me a headache. You'd, you'd use as many words as you can to say nothing. Hebrew is the very opposite of that. It is a picture language, and everything is action. It's all in action. And, and I barely touch the surface of that. But So that whole area of that world it, it was attractive to me. And, and I just got into that that whole thing. And in the Bible, once you start to get into that, all of a sudden Israel takes on a whole new meaning. I just did a teaching at my the church I go to, to in Bel Air on um, a topic called lessons from the wilderness and the the and what that's all about is a lot of the psalms 23 and different verses are images that we put in our world but it's not the same image when it put it back in israel it's different it's Mm -hmm. very very different and that's again another long topic but that whole world the the world of israel and even the geography of israel is amazing it's totally relevant to the bible and to understanding um, the Hebraic mindset is so different. Even today, and I've seen some mil- I've seen some military drills. We've been in an area in southern Israel, done some volunteer work on an archaeology site where they do a lot of drills. The, the, the soldiers will sit down after they do a drill, and the, the all the regular soldiers, the lowest person, like a, you know, they start as early as 18 years old, kids to 21, would have as much input into that drill that they just performed as a commanding officer. Wow. So the mindset's different. They look upon, okay, what do you guys see? What can we do different? That's what's created an incredible IDF because they listen to those people. It's a different mindset. It's not the elite like, okay, you're up here. I'm down there. You know, you don't really have much voice. No, you do something. You're in the trenches. You know exactly what's going on here. I want to know what did you see? How can we do this different? Now, I've seen this and it's amazing. It is a very, very different mindset. And uh, it just become very fascinating to me. So that, that is amazing. And so, okay, if I could just kind of rewind. So, when you were talking about um, people creating things with their hands, and how even the rabbis respect that and put that on the the top notch of of respect, when you can take something and create it, maybe whether it be clay or wood or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that kind of goes back to the concept of creation and our creator, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of re- reflective of that. Am I right? Sure. Okay. Exactly. And so the same thing would be that as human beings, when we're involved in something like maybe teachers or 
um, military, you're a soldier, and you are on the ground level doing things, and you learn the intricacies of actually being on the front line, that you're saying that the top brass or the leaders see that as a very valuable source of information so they can formulate their plans going forward. So they want to accept people's opinions and viewpoints on different things. Is that kind of what you just said? hundred percent. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because I don't, you know, one of the questions and the things I've always had an issue with in education, at least lately, is that all these new programs and acronyms coming down the pike, things like PBIS, DEI, SEL, you know, you can go on and on. Um, it's it's almost like they they fall upon us like uh, manna from heaven, and they're divine, and you can't question them. And if you do, well, you're just a very difficult person, you know. And because I'm I've been around a while, maybe I'm just classified as one of those, you know, old cudgels of you know some grumpy old man or something. But like you said, that's totally different than the the Hebraic view of things. Well, I mean, it, you know, we had problems with that back when I was teaching, but I'm sure it's gotten worse in terms of teachers not having enough input, teachers who actually teach. Mm-hmm. And I said that to some of these university professors that come up with these harebrained ideas. I'd ask them, I'd say, when's the last time you were in a classroom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, 35 years ago, whatever. You know, a mo- and, and that was demoralized, demoralizing to teachers I saw um, and over time because – they, they kind of felt like they're just on the back burner. It doesn't really matter. Just do my job. And I hated to see that. It was yeah. awful. There was one model, if I could quickly point it out. Sure. It is a model that worked. Um, it was called the Michigan Geographic Alliance. I don't know if it's still going on or not. It started in West Ottawa. And what that was all about is teachers sharing ideas that they've they've true tested in classroom with actual students. Wow. And uh, geographic teaching uh, teaching uh, in, uh, in geography classes. Um, and they would, there'd be all people could share their ideas and they would refine them and they would come together and they, they would kind of share them. And it was really popular when it comes to the state social studies convention, the Michigan geographic Alliance classes were packed. Everybody wanted to be in there because they knew this is real. These are teachers that are sharing their ideas, you know, and the model is that's the model. And, and they've worked on this in the class. They know what works. And teachers got excited about that. You know, they love that. You know, and you get beaten down by all this other stuff that is meaningless. Yeah. You know, it really is. It's all about excellence in education, refining it, getting the best lessons, getting kids excited about the curriculum, getting teachers excited about the curriculum. You know, I remember one of the funnest things to me was um, on our teaching team when we'd be planning something and everybody get excited and they're all sharing ideas. I thought, yes, this is the way it works. That's the way it should be. Yeah. I'm kind of sad to say that, um, most things now are force fed from the top. We're kind of told what we're doing. And and as a matter of fact, um, it's even now where they're expecting us to do the same thing on the same day with the same lesson and the same, I mean, they want, they literally want everything to be lockstep. And and what that does is what I've sensed is that's really demoralized the creative aspect of being a teacher. Sure. And uh, it's just not, it hasn't been very, it hasn't been healthy for the, for teachers. And that's one of the, be. one of the keys to burnout today. It'll be absolutely, it'd be demoralizing. I saw it. Yeah. It was sad. I mean, I, teachers that I taught with, a lot of them were saying, I can't wait to get out of here. Yeah. I'm sick of it. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I just it just ticked me off is what it did. It really did. I just got ticked off watching this stuff. I understand. Let it get, go on like that. Well, hey, I want to talk about. Um, you told me a lesson a while back, a biblical lesson about the Tower of Babel. And boy, it really hit me hard because you kind of brought it into perspective with regard to what's going on in society and in schools today. And if you could give me a condensed version of that story and kind of explain it uh, with the um, the man-made bricks versus the living stones. I felt that that story was just so prophetic for what we're dealing with today. Yeah, that's that's part of that. The Bible becomes a big picture book thing I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. Um, the first incident in the Bible of anything, it's called the first mention, is critical to understanding the concept. So in other words, any concept where it's first mentioned, when you take a look at it, that is essential to understand it. The first mention or idea of the of a globalism idea, of the whole world coming together, um, was the Tower of Babel, the Tower and the City of Babel. I should put both of them together, mm-hmm. and you know, just basically, what what does that mean from a Hebraic concept, and how does that relate, and what what can we get out of that? Okay, the Tower of Babel was the actual tower itself was made out of bricks. Now. You might say, you might think, well, big deal, made out of bricks, who cares? God said in his description, now this is back not too long after the flood, a couple generations. He said that all of my altars will be made out of stone, not cut with human hands. So what do you mean by that? Why? Well, if you think about it, stones are all individual sizes, shapes. They're all different, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the way he created them. So he said, you take these stones that I created, and that's what you make altars with. Now, this whole idea of making a tower out of bricks on the surface would be like, what are you talking about here? Well, God condemned that because he said that the idea that bricks are formed out of human hands. They're all cut. They're cut to the same size. They're they're all cut and molded. And then they're then. Uh, the leader of this movement was a guy named Nimrod, who was a you know the first worldwide tyrant leader, and he he used something called asphalt for the first time ever to put these bricks together, and he was going against what God said completely, because the building material, even though he obviously wasn't going to follow God, God's design was that everything is stone, not brick. So the Israelites were not to use bricks. When they were in, enslaved in Egypt, in Egypt, by the way, actually means slavery, Mitzrayim in Hebrew, they were making bricks. So it's kind of this symbol of, of slavery. Mm-hmm. So what, what's the difference? Well, the idea is, and these, the ancient rabbis understood this and they, they wrote about this. So why does God say that? Why, why, does he, you know, why does he care? Because he knew that this whole idea of coming together idea is going to be trying to make everybody conform to the same thing. They have to do this, this, and this in order to get that. They have to totally conform. Whatever the leader sets, they've got to do exactly. They're like a brick. Whereas God said, no, you are living stones. He even said that in the in the New Testament, meaning that he wants to build a church out of these all these different shaped stones 
to make the church out of that. The idea is there's unity and diversity. Mm. That's e pluribus unum. That's our model. Um, because everybody's different. God created, he knew you in your mother's womb. He knit you, you formed you. He created each one of us with a different characteristics, different unique uh you know, things that we'd like to do and, and things that we should be doing in our life because that's how we were formed. That's how we're wired. That's being a stone. And he, he, the whole idea is I want you to be these living stones, but I want unity of believers, but I want it to be through this diversity. That's literally how this country was formed. And the whole idea of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel is no, no, you are going to conform like this. Just like today we have this whole great reset mm-hmm. and they have this metric called ESG. You have to do this, this, and this, or you don't get you, you don't get credit. You're not going to get the money. That's another whole story. Mm-hmm. But that's that idea that all of this started. This whole idea of all these worldwide tyrants gradually take away your rights. Right? They just take them away. It starts with freedom of speech. It all disappears, and then they set the rules. Everybody's got to do this if you want to make it in this world, and that is completely contrary the way God created each one of us. So can I summarize what you just said? So what you're saying is Nimrod was urging conformity, and that's not just conformity with language, but with belief, and you are to do the same thing. And and the bricks, which were man-made and created, essentially each brick was exactly the same, was reflective of the concept that Nimrod was trying to promote of conformity. Conformity, exactly. and which exactly. represents globalism, a one-world government system. And you're saying that stones, each kind of almost created in somewhat of a supernatural way, because they're just created, right? God, mm-hmm. God made them. Each one is unique and only fulfill one specific, can only fit in one place uniquely, right? And exactly. that, that re- represents um, that God created each individual in his image, each unique and appreciated as a unique individual that can contribute their own unique qualities to the world. So I, I kind of see that almost like um, uh, an analogy looking at things from a kind of a critical race perspective of today, where everyone's trying to classify everyone in by race or categorize them by gender or gender identity or this or that it seems like the world is trying to put people into groups and what you're saying is that's the opposite of the hebraic or the biblical view of what things are supposed to be 100 percent. and if you want to let me give you a telling statement john dewey father of modern day education supposedly right yeah who traveled to moscow and got a lot of ideas from there also the nea uh put him as their honorary lifetime president (laughs) nice um Here's a statement. You can't make socialists out of individuals. Hmm. Do you see the brick stone idea there? You can't make socialists, which sets the goal, socialism, Mm -hmm. this broad government-based, you know, here's the structure, out of individuals, which, of course, represents capitalism in their their idea. So literally, he's tipping his hand. That these people, there are these people who had this goal in education way back. You know, not that this all came out. I think a lot of it's coming more out today. That they wanted to go against this whole idea of everything that's going really against God's model. To be honest with you, everything that's going on right now that's in these bad trends. And that's one of them. Boy, that's a telling statement. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, hey, Denny, I have uh, one thing that I'm going to start doing as a tradition as I do more of these interviews. And by the way, you're going on an archaeological dig uh, next week, correct? Yeah, and Saturday you, or uh, Thursday. I mean, and, yep. and just like 10 seconds, can you kind of tell me a little bit about that? Because I'm going to interview when, when you get back. This sounds amazing. Yeah, um, we're headed to Jordan. And um, fortunately, I have a wife, Sherry, who's game for stuff because I come up with some dumb <laughs> harebrained ideas sometimes. Even though we're getting a little older, I'm still going after it. Yeah. I, anyway, long story short, I read this book, um, a guy named Eric from Texas, great book. Yep. It's called Is Atheism Dead? Really good book. I'd highly recommend it. But anyway, he mentioned, and, I, and I'm well aware of a lot of the archaeology stuff in Israel. I've been most of them and all my trips there, but he talked about one in Jordan. It was like one of the ones that just blew him away more than anything else. I thought, I wonder what that is. And he said, Sodom. I thought, okay, I don't really know much about what's going on there. Anyway, long story short is it's, it's north of the sea, uh, north of the Dead Sea, about five miles is where they've discovered for 16 years now, they've been working on this. Even the secular scientists are coming on board to say, wow, this truly is Sodom. I, obviously, I can't say this in a few seconds because there's so right. much here. No, but, exactly. Um, yeah. But they discovered the, the gates. They discovered the palace complex. It's a massive fortress, 10 times the size of Jerusalem, 10 times the size of Jericho. They know exactly how it was destroyed, exactly the way the Bible says. And, and the scientific, the secular scientists say this. They know they exactly describe how, how Sodom was destroyed. Um, I don't have time to explain it here, but what it's, in other words, bottom line is what it's doing is exactly proving the Bible. Right. It's like the idea that stones of Sodom are crying out and the stones all over Israel because archaeology all over the country is continually proving the Bible almost, almost every day in Jerusalem. So this one's been going on for years. And, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be something to be, be able to be part of that? And they literally... Um, or have been down at the level of destruction. They could like, literally see the level of destruction where it was burned. They found, you know, fragments of human bones and all the, the levels of destruction. And uh, so I, I called and checked on it, and sure enough, we can get in, and we're going to be on the final two weeks of the 16th year in the very end of the project. So that's, that's where we're going. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I'd love to interview when you get back so you can tell us all about it. Sure, that'd be fine. And and you know what's interesting is all of these archaeological discoveries that are proving the Bible on a daily basis, mm-hmm. isn't it interesting how you, you don't really hear much about that? You kind of have to dig for that information. Well, that's that's not going to be something that, uh, you know, that's part of that cone of no, of news I mentioned. Yeah. It's outside the cone. Yep. Nope. <laughs> so you, you'll never hear about it. Isn't that something? Never. Yeah, it's it's truly amazing. The, the biblical model is Prophet Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And and that's a crime Man. because in this country, we have such a lack of knowledge right now. I think more than ever. Yep. And that's just wrong. You know, well, we need to know what's going on. Well, I'm going to play a clip because this is a tradition I want to start uh, where I just play a clip and you don't know what it is. And then okay. I just want you to react to it. And I'm going to do this. And every time I interview somebody, I'm going to do, do this thing. And, okay. um, I can set this up for you a little bit. There is an author, very popular in educational circles. Her mm-hmm. name her name is Robin DiAngelo. She is, uh, I would say, she's an elitist. She's uh, one of one of the highest ranking um, members of academia in that sure. her books are looked upon as biblical truth. 
Mm-hmm. And right. She promotes a concept called white fragility, and she's going to tell you about it. So you can just listen, and then uh, okay, and then we'll talk about it. Sure. The fragility part is meant to capture how little it takes to cause white people to erupt in defensiveness. But the impact of that defensiveness, however, is not fragile at all. It functions as a kind of everyday white racial control by making it so difficult for people to challenge us uh, on our unaware assumptions and biases that most of the time they don't. And so it, it functions to keep everybody in their place and protect the racial hierarchy. No, no, I'm not a racist. I am the least racist person you have ever interviewed. That I can tell you. Some defensiveness is natural. You know, it's a natural part of the process. The key is that you must move through that defensiveness. It's defensiveness that functions to refuse to engage, to protect a very limited worldview, to let in no information or no challenge. Guys, come on, okay? I just want to be able to do and say whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't want to have to think about the world's problems. <sighs> it serves us not to speak about it. Racism is the status quo. It is the status quo of your society, of my society, of all Western-oriented white settler colonials cultures. All right, that was uh, Robin D'Angelo. What, just, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would say she just made my point. <laughs> Case in point, that that little level of babbling there, um, just circular logic, just it, completely irrational, makes absolutely no sense. You know, it really doesn't. That'll just give you a headache listening to it. That there is nothing redeemable, no value in that kind of thinking. There just isn't, because literally, to me, she's almost reversed it. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find it shocking that her book is a New York Times bestseller, has been for a long time, and that um, in-service training with a lot of school districts um, <clears throat> use her writings as uh, kind of their core? Yeah, I, I guess at this point, probably not, because I've read enough about where all this stuff is coming from. I mean, obviously, it's ridiculous. Um, there's no redeemable value, value in that. But that's you know what these people are looking for today, and it's uh, it's indoctrinating the kids. That's all it wants to. It is going to destroy the country. You cannot get on that path. It is not true. I mean, we're not having a. It's not a. I mean, really, it just it just makes no sense what she's saying. So and you, to me, really, what she's saying is racism. Yeah. So you don't agree with the fact that uh, all white people are implicitly biased and racist, and if they say they're not, like, if if like she said. Um, if you you demonstrate your white fragility by re, responding defensively, that even proves even more so that you are racist. <laughs> I'd like to have a personal conversation. Yeah, personal. I would like to have a conversation with her this broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> this is insane. Yeah, Absolutely insane. I know. Well, hey, I mean, Danny, it's so ridiculous. It is. It is absolutely just ridiculous. So I want you, as a sage of the North as I call you, from northern Michigan, but a a person who spent a long time in public education. There's a lot of teachers that are in the business right now that are feeling kind of burned out, demoralized. Uh, The morale in a lot of school buildings is not good. I would like you to offer kind of an outgoing message to these teachers 
to offer some hope and encouragement moving forward? Okay, that's hard. It really is. And I feel for him because, it, you know, I remember what it was like at the end of my career watching the, even back then in 08, 09. So I know it's that much worse. But I don't think I could say is what, what I would think almost myself, and I've even mentioned this to you, is totally focus on what you're doing and do that to the best of your ability. And and it, some of that stuff that you've got to web in because you're going to be checking on whatever, but you have to focus on your job doing the very best you can and just let that be the focus. You really want to, um, to do your very best with the kids. And that doesn't, that's no solving of all this other stuff. It's about time administrators and school boards need to, to wake up and decide what is best, what really is best for kids. But that's all I could say right now. Um, it's sad and it's too bad kids that are, you know, looking forward to a career and then they get demoralized. I, I definitely feel feel bad. It's wrong. It's almost criminal as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just wrong. You know, but I think you we we have to do the best of where we are. That's what it amounts to. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. And that those are words of wisdom. So, you know, kind of uh do it you can for the kids, focus on them and um doing the job to the best of your ability and being thankful you have a job, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. And, every, and education is an incredibly worthwhile career. It just is. Yep. And you don't even know sometimes what influence you're having on those kids. You really don't. So look upon that, too. That There's some eternal benefit going on there, too. It's not just a paycheck or whatever. Right. That you, You're dealing with kids. And that's a, that's a monstrously important thing. Because these are future adults, future of the country. So you're, anything you can instill into them to any, you know, that really accelerates their own career and is only to their benefit. And that's a big part. Teaching is such an important career. No, I agree. Yeah. Well, hey, Denny, it has been awesome talking with you. And I knew a lot about you, but I got to learn some more. And um, we are looking forward to part two when you come back from Sodom and you spent time in that dig. Um, it, that's going to be an awesome interview too. So, um, thank you again for your time. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and tell Sherry, uh, I said, hi. We'll do. All Thanks, right. Tom. Thanks, Danny. We'll see yeah. you. Bye. Well, Hey folks, um, Denny's gone, but thank you so much for coming and spending some time on the chalkboard interview series here with the edge of Babel Emporium. It was indeed a pleasure talking to Denny. He is a he is someone that's just provided me with uh, so much great wisdom over the years, and um, he never lets me down. So I hope you all have a wonderful week ahead. And again, thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed the Blarney from Mr. Brand show, would you mind Tablet giving it a five-star rating so they don't kick the bugger off the platform? Much obliged.